This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to More Than Amused podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to More Than Amused podcast. My name is Sadie. I'm Stani, and happy December. Start of the holiday season, and as of yesterday, happy Spotify wrapped season. If yes. that's something that you care about, I always look Love forward it. to it every year. I do too, and I don't mind when people share them. Like I think it's I really fun. I love seeing what people listen to all year. Same. I love it. Especially like how many minutes everyone's listened to and like mm-hmm. everyone's top artists. I feel like you get so much insight into like yeah, who they are how as a they person. live their lives. Yeah, yes, it's 1, so much fun. Do you want to give me a very brief rundown of what did your Spotify yes. raps look like? Of course I do. Okay, <laughs> I was really proud of my top artists because I feel like it was like – well, of course, it was accurate, but like it was just so perfect for the year. Mm-hmm. So it was Taylor Swift was number one. Of, of course. course, I'm in the top five percent of listeners. Like nothing that's to really brag good. about, I mean, but like that's pretty good. Pretty good. Um, second was Chapel Roan. Chapel Roan did not make an appearance in mine, and I was shocked because I listened to her so much. But I had her on repeat for all of October, so. Mm. <laughs> I guess that'll do it. Yeah. And then I was listening to the singles throughout the year, too. So it kind of made sense. Third was Maisie Peters. Love her to death. Then Olivia Rodrigo. And then Kelsey Ballerini. Kelsey Ballerini was number four for me. Yeah. And it was so fun because I went to three out of five of those concerts. And I missed the Chapel Roan bun by only a day. And then, like, I even logged in to buy Olivia Rodrigo tickets. And they were just too expensive. So it was kind of, like, fun that it was like, oh, no, those really were, like, my top five. Those were my top five. (laughs) Yeah. My top song was Bad Idea Right. um, Oh. Which I love. And then I had two Chapel Roan songs, My King is Karma and Red Wine Supernova. (sighs) And then I actually had an Ava Max song. Have you listened to One of Us? No, I haven't. I remember I listened to that for like two days straight. Like I just put it on all the time. So so funny. And then my fifth one was one that I actually brought up in an episode. It was Omaha by the girl on TikTok. Like Uh I really did love that song. I was a little surprised it was five. I guess I listened to it a lot more than I thought. Yeah. But yeah, like – it made perfect sense. My yeah. top artist was Taylor Swift. I hit the top 1%. So crazy. Said my annual badge of honor is <laughs> the top. One year I got like 0.05% and I was just like, wow. I'm, Man. I haven't hit that since. Number two was Lana Del Rey. Checks Love. out. Three was Miley, which actually Ooh. surprised me. She was in my top 10. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not mad about it, but I'm yeah. surprised that she made it to three. And then four was Kelsey Ballerini. And then five, I say only slightly shameful was daisy aka yourself and i yes (laughs) whatever i will say on the flip side that like as an artist also spotify rap season is an interesting time it can be a little bit discouraging Mm. i think i was a little bit nervous for it just because this year i only put out two songs when like the year previously i put out six and so i just knew that like the numbers just like you know it might look a little bit less i just wasn't really focused on promoting as much this year and so i was like a little uh. but I-, I was really happy with it it's still and then i had people tagging me of like songs that came out in 2022 that they were like still streaming and it made their top fives and so like that's awesome it was really special to like still see that but for my own top songs anti-hero was my top song of the year, which it was also my top song of the year last year. Mm, so apparently I love that really song. really love that song. But I also, <laughs> I did put out a cover of that song and a lot of my listening, I will say, is probably like listening over and over to make sure that I was like sense. getting the harmonies right. Yeah. Then it was Karma, Cruel Summer, and then All of the Girls You've Loved Before. I did stream the heck out of that song when oh. it first came out. And then it was um my cover of Antihero. That was number five. 
So, there you, go. you know, you got to be your own biggest fan sometimes. Yeah. One thing I also wanted to bring up, they give a podcast wrapped. Yes. Which is really fun. Mm. We didn't know about it the first year, but we'd only been podcasting for like two months. So I don't yes. even know if we would have had that much. True. But fun thing, our top episode was Feminine Rage, Women in Anger, which I loved. I and know. I was so happy to see yeah, that. Yeah. So exciting. Definitely a forecast for the new year. Our most shared episode was Romance Novels Aren't Trashy, which is a huge favorite. Yes. That is like my personal favorite episode I think we've ever done. It's my favorite one to research for. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like when we released it, it didn't get a lot of love and I was kind yeah. of irritated. So the fact that now in 2023, like years after we put that out, it's getting some love. Thank you. Thank I know. you. So nice. And then 85% of you joined us for the first time this year, which is Yes. Very sweet of you. Thank you for being here. And um, we're the number one podcast for 27 fans. So yes. I am now in love with 27 more people. <laughs> and we were in like the top 10 for like 100 people. Yeah. Which was really mm -hmm. exciting. So thank you all of you for being here. Yes. Shout out to those who listen on Spotify. We we love you. We do. We know thanks what, for the leaving majority us of you are on Apple, but thanks for listening wherever you're listening. <laughs> That's true. Well, you know what? People who listen on Spotify leave us reviews a lot more than people on Apple Podcasts. So I feel like the people on Spotify are more real. I'm just saying. Yeah. We have one one-star review on Apple Podcasts. They didn't leave a review. They just leave us a rating, which was fine because I would probably cry if, if they said I something mean. I think it's my ex. <gasps> yeah. <sighs> I thought about it and I was like, huh, yeah. You know what? Maybe. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> that's so funny. Okay. Well, that's why they weren't brave enough to leave a review. They just one-starred us. They were subscribed um... and then I think... When they unsubscribed, unsubscribed they went and changed their review because it was five stars. So they retroactively changed that. Yeah, that's what that's what I would assume. Maybe that's <laughs> like egotistical of me, but I'm going to believe that for my own no, mental health. No, I think that's so valid. And if anyone who <laughs> listens on Apple Podcasts wants to counteract Stani's ex, we would appreciate it. We really would. I, I'm trying to counter every aspect of that relationship. So <laughs> if you want to help, that would be great. So true. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> well, I'm glad, glad we touched on that. Anything else? Or can we learn about the new artist to start off December? I think we should just dive in. I'm really, okay. really excited about this one. Cool. Me too. I found her last year because on Christmas, Ooh. someone posted one of her paintings on one of the like accounts we follow. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote her down immediately for this year because we've talked about this. Finding Christmas people is kind of the hard. worst. And topics, like it's so hard. We have such an easy time with Halloween and such a very hard time with Christmas. And I definitely <laughs> thought it would be the opposite. I when know. we started podcasting for sure agreed so just kind of a funny thing her name is florian stepheimer and i've got to say i now am about as obsessed with her as i am with helma off clint and that is saying something wow so yeah yes. new new favorite right here but yeah we'll just dive in so florian stepheimer was actually born in new york on august 19th 1871 and of course, she was born into a wealthy family. I'm sorry. I know that's the case with the majority of people we cover. That's how women artists <laughs> existed back then. They were very rich. That was the only way. They really were. It's kind of that quote that everyone likes to talk about that it's like we, the ancestors studied like engineering so that their descendants could study art and music. Mm. It's basically like as your family gets richer, you accumulate more artists in your family yeah, tree because okay. they have the luxury of being able to do whatever they want rather than having to work manual mm -hmm. labor so interesting yeah just how it went but her mother rosetta walter was actually one of nine daughters from a wealthy german jewish family in new york and then her and um Stettheimer's father had five children together but her father wasn't a part of her life he actually deserted his family and ran away to australia oh which was a little weird to think about because wasn't that the time period when they were literally like shipping all the criminals off to australia too i don't know what you're talking about so <laughs> oh they did yeah okay hold on <laughs> 
I should have Googled that too, but... I mean, I believe you. I'm not doubting your story. It literally was. It was right after. Okay, so between seven... For those of you who don't know this, <laughs> this is how Australia was founded by, like, I guess colonized, like, not founded because there was Aboriginals there before. But Correct. between 1788 and 1868, more than... 162,000 convicts were transported from Britain to Australia. <laughs> and of those, about 7,000 arrived in 1833 alone. And it was like punishment for their crimes committed in Britain and Ireland. So they basically were like, here's a country. We're going to have that be our jail. Like you're banished. Go see what you make of yourself out there. Yeah. Wow. So I did 20%- not know that. Yeah, 20% of the Australian population are actually descended from people who were originally transported there as convicts. No way. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. What a weird thing about history. Like, I know. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's a lot of like British influence in Australia. It's because they originally were British citizens that were mm. banished to Australia. Okay. Fun fact. But anyway, he deserted his family for Australia right after they stopped sending criminals there. So, Hmm. cool. Yeah. Who knows what he was doing with his life? He doesn't show up ever again. By the time she was 10 years old, they actually were spending a part of every year in Europe, you know, as the wealthy do. (laughs) By the early 1890s, two of her children had married and left the household, but then the three youngest had like a very, very close bond with their mom. They were all very, very close and they remained that way until she passed away. And they spent a lot of time in Europe. Like she probably was raised more in Europe than in the United States, I would say. So a lot of European influence. Uh, She did have a lot of artistic talent as a child. From 1881 to 1886, when she was 10 to 15, she actually went to a girls boarding school. It's called like Stuttgart's institute or something Mm -hmm. and she took private art instruction with the director sophie von preiser and then the statheimers lived in berlin from 1887 to 1888 where she continued to take private drawing lessons and then she as she was traveling throughout europe of course with her sister she had the privilege Mm -hmm. of going to visit museums and art galleries in italy france spain and germany the dream. She was able to attend like all of these art museums and teach herself art history and then learn from the old masters. She would critique their work in her diaries, <laughs> which I think is very cool. I wish we had those. I want to know what she thought was yeah. acceptable or unacceptable <laughs> from each of them. Honestly, too, like I, I feel like that shows a lot about somebody if at a young age they feel like comfortable like critiquing the masters you know what I mean I think yeah definitely shows a fortitude and like a I don't know like knowing yourself to like be so confident in your own opinions that you feel like you can question definitely the masters you know that's such a good point because these are like hanging in museums yeah and to be like wrong don't Mm -hmm. like this like I feel like when I was a kid I was always like oh no the people who are in charge know best or the people who are, True. you know, lauded as the most important, they know best. So I think it I don't know, shows something very significant about who she was and her character. The fact that so young, she was like, mm, this is what I would do differently. Yeah, no, I love that. She also like took private art lessons this whole time. And one of her main medias was called Hacian. And okay, this sent me on like a weird little rabbit hole because I was up in my parents' house for Thanksgiving and we were eating chipotle and you know how sometimes it like it can be a little bit spicy depending on like what salsa or something yeah. you got plus i'm white and i'm a weakling um but we were talking about the fact that like oat milk doesn't get rid of the spice the way that regular like cow's milk, milk does yeah okay and so i ended up like looking up why milk gets rid of spice and oh. it's from a protein called casein so when i read that she like was taking Casey and media lessons I was like wait a second like what's the what (laughs) I was like like the protein in milk and yes it actually was um so they would take like milk-based water-soluble paint okay and they painted with it and it actually has been found in prehistoric cave paintings like milk paint has been around for 
ever. There's actually like Archaeology magazine reported that researchers in the Sibidu cave in South Africa discovered residue that contained like powder ochre mixed with milk to create paint. And that's from like 50,000 years ago. And they've even found like ochre paints dating back to 125,000 years ago. And they even realized that casein was used very commonly during, like, the Egyptian era. And it's, like, found Mm -hmm. in ancient Egyptian and Chinese artifacts as, like, an adhesive Mm -hmm. or, like, a powdered pigment and then a paint. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, wow, that is so strange. But the reason why people like it so much, it has, like, a lustrous surface and it creates, like, really vibrant colors. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also is resistant to water when they cure, which is unlike gouache or tempera paints that you can still like, if you get it wet, it will run. Mm-hmm. But casein doesn't. So they used it a lot for sign painting, actually, and then like illustrators and commercial artists because it is easy to apply. The consistency is really even, but it doesn't run with water. Okay. Yeah, so cool. it was actually a really popular paint at the time. It entered the market commercially for, like, artists in the 1900s. And then there was, like, a Raman Shiva Casian paint in 1933. And they actually still sell it today. Hmm. And fun fact, it's very environmentally friendly, unlike acrylic paints, oh. which aren't because they're plastic. I know yeah. a lot of people paint with oil paint because that's more environmentally friendly. And casein or casein is actually very similar to that. A lot of people actually varnish between casein and oil to keep the oil from sinking down into the casein paint. And it can also be used as underpainting for pastels. So I learned a whole lot about paint. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I never would have learned it if it wasn't for you right now. So thank you for sharing that with me. I was like, that is so random. So that's why I had to talk about it because I was just like, what the heck? <laughs> but I like wish we would have learned about that. Like I learned how to oil paint and I kind of wish we had learned casein paint. Mm-hmm. It has kind of more of like a pastel look to it it's really pretty like if you google and check out some of the images from it i feel like they're very they are kind of like milky i guess you could say but oh yeah i see what you mean Mm -hmm. kind of (laughs) milky yeah they look a lot like gouache but then it's cool that they don't they're water resistant so just kind of like a fun thing that i never heard about in all of my years of art education i was gonna say art degree literally (laughs) So in 1892, she actually enrolled at a four-year program at the Art Students League in New York, which was modeled after the private art schools in Paris. And then while she was in Germany, she learned the style of German academic painting and then went back and studied with teachers like Kenyon Cox, Heron Siddons Morbury, and James Carroll Beckwith, who had studied French academic painting in Paris. Um, By graduation, she'd actually mastered painting realistic traditional academic portraiture and nudes in both of the primary European styles. So very, very, very traditional education. Cannot Mm -hmm. emphasize that enough, which is going to be extremely shocking when you see her work. Okay, I can't. I'm like waiting to (laughs) Google it. So (laughs) just just tell me when and I'll look it up. (laughs) Like realistic traditional academic portraiture that I would not use any of those words to describe her later works. So it's kind of fun to see where she comes from. When she returned to Europe, she would visit museum collections, contemporary salon exhibitions and artist studios. She saw the work of the Cubists, Cezanne, Mayonnais, Vincent Van Gogh, Berth Morissette, who we've talked about in the Impressionist movement, and Matisse years before the Armory show, which was like the first exhibition of modern art in America. So she was seeing things before they made it across the waters. Um, She also started to experiment a ton with her style and a lot of different mediums. She tried symbolism and favism, pointillism, and did like a bunch of stuff that was very reminiscent of Matisse, who was, uh, I think, post-Impressionist. Yeah, just kind of trying a bunch of stuff out. Also, during her 20s and 30s, she had a lot of, like, flirtations, romantic relationships right around these times. And she wrote a lot in, like, diaries and wrote poems and uh, had a lot of paintings that showed that she was most likely straight. She expressed a lot of admiration for the male anatomy, is how they say it. Um, However, she was, like, adamantly opposed to the idea of marriage. 
Okay. Okay. Cool. Yes. Like very, very, very against it. She was hardcore feminist in the 1930s. And she believed that marriage constricted women's freedom and it interfered with creativity. And so she wrote a lot about that. And she was also so feminist because she wore her white pantaloons that was only worn by feminists and suffragettes. Bloomers. (laughs) Bloomers, yes. (laughs) Which also allowed her like allowed her a greater range of motion so that she could work on larger canvases. And during her years in Europe, I love this, her and her sisters would seek out theater productions that featured feminist themes and women performers. Oh, that's cool. Yep. Same as as I am doing right now. Mm -hmm. And then they also kept like a bunch of flyers in their family scrapbook. And one of them was a copy of the proceedings of the first international feminist congress held in Paris in 1896. So they were like gung-ho women's rights. Cool. I also think like her distaste for marriage probably had a lot to do with her dad. I, yeah. Leaving, which like. You're allowed to think however you want. But, like, watching her mom raise everyone alone, she was probably like, wow, it would be a lot easier if you never even bothered to marry the man, you know? Mm -hmm. Fair. So one thing that really made a big impact on her later career in the arts was the performances of Sergei Diaghilev. I'm going to say it wrong. That's okay. (laughs) Diaghilev's – I'm – butchering that but ballet russe in paris in 1912 she was very captivated by like staging choreography of the ballet russe and she actually helped out with creating the libretto costumes and sets for an opera of her own that ended up being based a lot on the like the art the annual art students ball des court Quartz Arts, which I think was like a huge party that they would have for all of the art students. Okay. Um, and that's what her opera was based on. So she made like these costume characters with intricately sewn and beaded materials. They had like theatrical dance like movements that they were placed in. The little mm-hmm. mannequins. They called them maquettes. So I think they're like really tiny little mannequins. And this kind of was a huge aspect of her artwork. She also had a lot of them, the female figures, dressed in a newly invented transparent material, cellophane. Hmm. Weird to think of a time before cellophane. Yeah, it's like, oh, that had to be invented. (laughs) So weird every time that happens. It ended up becoming a hallmark of her interior design later and a huge impact on her later career in stage sets which she did end up dallying and again later okay so we'll talk about that but her libretto opera was actually published in its entirety in a biographer barbara blomick's the life and art of florence Stattheimer. so it did end up seeing the day light of day later i want to like read the opera right (laughs) i want that so badly now so i actually ordered her biography i don't know if it was that exact one i can check right now because it had a Black Friday deal. And I'm obsessed with her, like I said. And I was like, I want to know more. So yeah. <laughs> it's arriving on Monday. Oh, it is Barbara Blomick, but it's Florence Stettheimer, a biography. Oh, cool. It was published in 2022. Yeah, just talking about her. So I'll let you know if it's in there. But I'm really, really excited to get it and like look more at her paintings and everything. Like very, very thrilled. Yeah. So in 1914, outbreak of World War One happened, and they were actually stranded in Bern, Switzerland, for a short time before boarding a ship and returning to New York City. On returning there, she decided to just reject all of her traditional academic training and create a brand new painting style that was based on like the expressive emotions and like the immediate feeling that she had of like seeing the sights, sounds and peoples of 20th century New York City. Hmm. What a time to be alive, right? What a <laughs> time to be alive. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure like after World War One and being tra- like stranded in Switzerland and then finally making it back to New, New York and just seeing like the hustle mm-hmm. and bustle of the city probably was very inspiring to her. So her mother and her three youngest daughters, who are now all in their late 30s and early 40s, all moved in together into a colorful household on the Upper West Side, and they began to hold salons. So they would invite 
all of these insanely talented artists to mm-hmm. come and exhibit at their little personal salon in their house. And this included like Marcel Ducamp, who's very well known. Um, um, yes. Okay. Yeah, Marston Hartley and Georgia O'Keeffe. And then other like musician, writers, poets, dancers, and members of New York's avant-garde. They were known for their sophisticated interests, their fashion sense, and their open acceptance of varied sexualities, which made like a really big difference. At the time, homosexual relationships were illegal in New York still. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the things that was really great about the Stettheimer Salon is that they allowed all of their like gay, bisexual, lesbian friends to come and they didn't have to disguise their sexual orientation. They were allowed Mm. to just be themselves, which they were unable to do at other artist gatherings. Like the Arzenberg Salon, which was like a really popular salon in New York at the time. They didn't have to worry about that. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. So just really inclusive and I'm sure wonderful for everyone to just go and relax and still enjoy like that coming together of artists without having to worry about any repercussions. And they continued this, like, in their Manhattan homes, but they also did it with their rented vacation homes in Terrytown or Seabright at different times of the year. So they were, like, constantly having salons. What a dream little life. I know. I'm like, I want to go. Yeah, like, can I be invited? <laughs> yeah. Go back that. in time. Get a time machine just to go to their one of their salons. Right. Actually. Uh, they were just, like, these eccentric older women, like, throwing a party in their Manhattan apartment and that's, inviting all of these that's a eccentric dream. <laughs> avant-garde New York people would love. Yeah. Uh, she would also, like, preview her newest paintings to her friends at salons prior to sending them to exhibitions. And her older sister was known for creating, like, special cocktails and dishes, such as feather soup, which was, like, a signature dish. And then during the summers, they would hold day-long salon, like, parties for friends at their rented summer houses. And mm-hmm. she painted a lot of these gatherings of, like, family members and friends enjoying outdoor festivities as well. It just sounds lovely. Like, what a yeah. life. <laughs> In 1915, um, one of her, like, most famous paintings um, mm-hmm. came about this time. It was at the age of 45. And she painted a naked, over life-size self-portrait a model, nude self-portrait, which combined elements of past controversial nudes, including Manet's painting of the prostitute Olympia and Goya's nude Maja. And it's one of the earliest nude self-portraits of a woman in Western art history. I love Mm -hmm. that she recognized like past controversial nudes that are like famously done by men and then incorporated into a self-portrait of herself. Yeah. Just incredible. Like I think it shows a lot of like not only like her feminist education but also like her art education too Mm -hmm. which is very cool she has like a humorous mocking expression in the portrait (laughs) which they said is like very contrasting to traditional paintings of nudes and this also makes it the most Mm. the earliest known overtly feminist nude self-portrait by a woman because she's like kind of laughing (laughs) which no one did that with nude portraits they were like very serious or um and she continued kind of like this idea of like female oriented contexts and in an unusual way including like the 1921 painting spring sale at bendel's where she captured like women of varying body shapes trying on clothing in an expensive department store um or she has another painting called natorium undyne which portrays nude women riding on floats or swimming on half oyster shells and (laughs) on the right and yes (laughs) and then on the right in a sexual reversal from traditional subject matter a group of women dances around a handsome male exercise instructor whom they admire for his physical appearance it's like a complete reversal of gender norms i love her are you kidding (laughs) me just so cool and her paintings are, I don't even know how to describe them. I They're just like, finally Googled them and I was going to tell you too. Love. Mm-hmm. Right? They're like whimsical. They're so whimsical. So colorful. I feel like it's a similar color palette, honestly, to Hilma off Clint. Uh, but not even necessarily. I mean, they're so Hilma different. Off Clint had a lot of writer. Yeah, but it's still kind of like instead of completely abstract like him off Clint, these are you can tell they're people 
but they don't really have yes. any distinguishing features. They're like little Mm-mm. shapes. And I love, I love them, them so, much. so much. They're just so yes. cool and like beautiful and I'm obsessed. Already like an Amazon book popped up of like the painting poetry and I'm like, yeah, I want that coffee table book. I just want to, right? be able to flip through her paintings. That's amazing. Ugh, I am so obsessed with them. Like, they're so cool. And once again, this is a plea to all of you who listen or watch on YouTube. Go follow us on Instagram because I will yeah, post, we'll post these. <laughs> yes. During her lifetime, she actually only had one solo exhibition. It was at Nobler wow. in 1916. And it was organized by the painter Albert Sterner's wife, Marie Sterner who was one of Mm. the first woman gallerists in America. And she worked as an intermediary between the artist and the gallery. And so it had a lot of like her early Matisse derivative derivative works, which was a little different. But when nothing sold, she was like vaguely dissatisfied, I said. But then later as her style evolved and she created kind of this like – I don't even know how to describe it. Just like complete rejection of traditional formalism and like this modernist mm-hmm. abstraction kind of. It was, yeah, literally. It's like minor, miniaturized, theatrical, colorful works. Mm-hmm. And this was very similar to like her designs for that early opera where she created like little figures dressed in pretty mm-hmm. colors, like posed in movements. And so like yeah. very, very similar to that. And she would create like identifiable family members, friends and acquaintances in it as well. So like even though we can't tell who they are, like there were different mm-hmm. characteristics that she would give them. So like people could tell who they were, which yeah. is so fun. Like little Easter eggs of all of her friends and family. And I read a whole article about it and they talked about how like each canvas, you have to look at it as like being arranged like a stage with like the little players all Mm -hmm. placed exactly how they would be in like her production of whatever she's presenting. So it's like she's Um, like painting like a scene from a... Yes. From the theater. It's like a little theatrical production that she's putting Mm -hmm. on with like little miniature people. I Um, feel like that fits. It's like not like a Where's Waldo, (laughs) but like kind of like looking at her paintings, I'm just like, oh, look at that little detail. Oh, and what's Mm -hmm. that person doing? (laughs) Like... Yeah, like from far away, you can't really tell what's going on. It just looks like a a loose pattern of a lot of like abstract shapes. Or you can like kind of tell there's people, Mm -hmm. but you're just like, whoa, there's so much happening. And then the closer you get, Mm -hmm. the more you realize like, oh, there's a lot happening. (laughs) Like each person has a very... And then you can like see the little moments. Mm -hmm. Yes, like they have a very distinct thing that they're doing and how they're interacting with the scene. And there's like so much detail and yet it's like not overly detailed. I don't know. It's so cool. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. So for today's spotlight episode, or today's episodes, today's, today's episode spotlight. (laughs) That's what it is. Um, I'm shouting out an Instagram account that I just discovered. And um, I think I'm going to buy one because this is a adorable so it is green is gold but green is spelled with the e at the end yes so it's flowers you can wear by a girl named michaela i think it's michaela green and they're like little pendants heart charms that have flowers on them i am so thoroughly obsessed with them they're so beautiful love oh it always scares me when they do like locket restocks at a certain time and it's like I know. Does that mean that there's they're gonna sell out in like five seconds? I, that's what I feel like. They're but yeah, they're absolutely adorable. Also, I don't even, I'm like, how much are they? Because I think they're made to. Oh, I think they might be made to order. Oh, fifty five dollars. That's actually not too bad. You that's get a really lot, and it's a locket. Oh my god, they're gosh. so pretty. Okay, I actually think that maybe this is what I want for Christmas from Jordan. That's a good replacement. Oh yeah, so you can do custom ones, or she does pre made drops. Okay, well, they're absolutely stunning, and I'm actually they're so pretty. Like, I want one for Christmas now. They're so beautiful. So I, know. I love add that to these. your wish list this year. Gosh, how does she even do this? I know, but so I'm obsessed. Pretty. So go check it out. Green is gold. Cool. Okay, I have an illustrator. I love all of the little illustrations that pop up around Christmas time. Me too. Adore it. Um, her name is Millie Putland, and her Instagram is Millie.illustrates. That's Millie with an IE. 
And it's just the cutest, sweetest little things. And I think it's so fitting for this week's episode because I can see, you know, some influence. Probably <gasps> yeah. she doesn't know it. But they're I see so some Florence Statheimer influence and I love and like she just has the cutest people on the town. Yes, like she has one of people skating and she has like some I think I saw like her Halloween ones a while ago. Mm-hmm. And it was like a little pink scene with all these ghosts like flying up from it. It's just so precious. So definitely go check her out in her scenes. I know she sells puzzles. Oh, I'm sure she these has. These are cute puzzles. These would be amazing oh, puzzles. She also has travel calendars. So you can get like oh, that's so calendars cute. that have all of the scenes from different places. And then she has a Christmas shop that has Christmas cards, bookmarks, ornaments, and more. So that's adorable. I feel like I'm in very easy person to shop for like i'm just like give me anything that's cute like this right but i don't feel like i know anyone in my life that i could just like give this artwork as a puzzle and they would be like thrilled but i would be thrilled if i got this puzzle i would be like thank you so much we should normalize buying art for people as more of like an acceptable gift because it's so expensive and yeah i don't feel like anyone ever gifts art art yeah i can i agree I'll buy you art one day. Thank you. Yeah, same. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. She also, of course, used bright, unmixed primary colors a lot of the times against a flat white background. She had a lot of various media that she would use. A lot of them have like little highly detailed humorous touches that showed like her biting humor. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's this one that she did. We'll talk about these paintings later, but there's these paintings that she did celebrating New York City. And in one of them, it's called Cathedrals of Fifth Avenue. She has a little altar boy that's trying to peek under the bride's gown, oh. which like inappropriate little boy, but like kind of funny that she included that, right? <laughs> yeah. I guess yeah. she's like truly trying to show like the – the spirit of New York or whatever. <laughs> yes, exactly. He also would do like prominent locations or accurately rendered well-known architecture so people would recognize mm. what it was along with like the people that she included too, you know, and making them so recognizable so that people could look at it and they could tell and yet it was so abstract. And that throughout mm. her life, like I know we talked about that first <laughs> exhibition, like no one bought anything. But gallerists of New York, including Julian Levy and Alfred Stiglitz, they asked her to join their galleries, and she did exhibit at a number of retail galleries. But every time they asked her to sell her work, she priced each painting at the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars so that nobody could afford them. And then when people would ask her why, she would smile and say she said she liked her pictures herself and preferred to keep them. So yeah, she didn't sell them. Amazing. I know. Like, wow. Yeah. So people would try to buy them. She wouldn't, but she would lend them to public exhibitions. So she continued to like exhibit her work, but she wouldn't sell like, any She of would her let pieces. people see it. And she was actually invited to exhibit paintings in almost every important exhibition of contemporary art. So like, I want to stress very, very well known. This included the very mm-hmm. first Whitney Biennial, which that's from the Whitney Museum of Art, very, very prominent museum of art. And that was their very first biennial. It was She was one of the earliest group exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art, the MoMA. Wow. Um, the Carnegie International mm-hmm. Exhibitions and the Salon d'Autumn in Paris. All in all, she exhibited in 46 exhibitions and her large colorful works were usually singled out by art critics for praise. So people were talking about her. She was everywhere. She was very, very well known. One critic actually mentioned her specifically in like a group exhibition. So there's like a a lot of people to talk about. And this writer Mm -hmm. photographer, Carl Van Vechten, 
And then another painter called Marston Hartley both commented that her work possessed a very modern quality. And then he said, at the risk of being misunderstood, I must call this quality jazz. Like, you know, just like, it's Mm -hmm. so good. And then Hartley praised her delicate satire and iridescent wit. Oh, I love that. And it definitely comes through through the paintings. Definitely. Yeah. So just lovely. One thing that has also been brought up a lot is that she had like this modernist approach, right? But there was like a whimsy that was very different from other modernist paintings. And two feminist like writers have written about her and said that she was unapologetically domestic and uber feminine. Her work has been variously mm. described as faux naif, reveling in simplified shapes and fauve like colors, as Rococo subversive, embracing a camp sensibility, and as a temporal modernism influenced by Bergsonian concepts of time, as a heterogeneous durée, aligning Stettheimer with Marcel Proust and other literary modernists. So, wow. They just really loved that she didn't try to be masculine in her work, like a lot of the modernists. And it's, I mean, yeah, they are very feminine. They are. And I love that they bring up like Rococo subversive because it is like the Rococo period was extremely feminine and it has a lot of those same color schemes. And yet like it's so Mm -hmm. modernist. It's just really cool. Like she has a very, very unique style. The 1920s were her most prolific period. Uh, She painted like a lot of individual portraits of male friends and herself and her family. Um, like her literary contemporaries Proust and Gertrude Stein, instead of trying to reproduce what the sitter would look like, her portraits revealed their personality. So she would illustrate a mixture of their habits, vocations, accomplishments, and context. That's cool. Yeah, I know, right? Like, (laughs) so cool. Um, She had a portrait of Marcel Ducamp and Rose Slavi, I think is how you say her name. And um, in it, like, they're kind of these smaller figures in, like, a bigger area. But then she included, like, images of a number of his ready-mades as well as his feminine alter ego, which was Rose Lobby. So it was, like, him sitting in the same room as his feminine alter ego. I don't know a ton about Marcel Ducamp. This made me want to look into him a little bit more. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, I was (laughs) going to say. I'm very intrigued by that. Um, Barbara Blomick proposed that Ducamp based his persona as Rose Lavi in the well-known photography by Man Ray on Stettheimer. So, like, saying mm-hmm. that maybe he even based this feminine alter ego on her since they were very well-known friends. She also painted individual portraits of her sisters, her mother, a self-portrait in which she's wearing an artist beret wrapped in a transparent cellophane sheath and a red-winged cape and is floating upwards towards the sun. Which, like, if you're going to paint yourself, that's yeah. the way to do it. Um, she also was known for painting, like, a lot of controversial subjects that were monumental as well. Mm. So she has a painting called Asbury Park South, which showed African Americans enjoying a well-known segregated New Jersey beach. So this is one of the earliest works of a white American artist to paint black figures with the same non-charactered features as the Caucasian figures. So she painted them as real people. Yeah. <laughs> and which is she... so sad that that's something that we're like, wow, good job. But like it is. Yeah. yeah. Like so important. And so that was like a really amazing thing that she's like showing them in a non-segregated setting and yet in a very mm-hmm. segregated, famously segregated place. Um, she has another painting called Lake Placid, where she painted herself and various friends of various religions, including Jews and Catholics, enjoying a day at Lake Placid, which was a site known for its institutionalized anti-Semitism. So once again, just being like, look at all my Jewish and Catholic friends enjoying your lake that is anti-Semitic. Ha, 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 ha. (laughs) Yeah. And then she painted the premiere of the controversial ballet performance that she saw in Paris in 1912. And she painted herself asleep, dreaming of the dancer Nijinsky in point with the body of both a man and a woman. I don't know what made that ballet controversial. But you can tell she just had, like, a really quick sense of humor that was shown in all of this. She liked people reacting. She did. She embraced it. During the 1930s, she continued to paint really large works, 
Some of them were increasingly introspective. A lot of them were returning to like familial subject matter and locations that had more to do with like her personal life. One thing that I really love is that every single year on her birthday, she would paint a floral still life. And she called them eye gaze, which was based on the word nosegay, like a small bouquet of flowers. But because it wasn't like you weren't sniffing it, it was an eye gaze. You at it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's adorable. Yep. And this like was also to just really show that she hated a lot of symbolism in art. So she wasn't like painting them to mean anything. She just was painting them because they were pretty. Yeah, I like Which that. I, like, I love, love that approach to art. Yeah. yeah, and every year on her birthday, like, that's just cute. Like, as a that's present to herself, she's like, I'm just going to paint, like, a little bouquet of flowers. Yeah, that's adorable. <laughs> yeah. During this time, she also spent a lot of time designing her most famous paintings that came in the 1940s. Um, but one thing to note is by the 1930s, she was second to Georgia O'Keeffe as the best-known woman artist in New York. Wow. This was like a little crazy to read considering that Georgia O'Keeffe is one of the most famous women artists of all time. And the fact that she was second to Georgia O'Keeffe and yet we don't talk about her was very strange to me. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. Like it's crazy how it's like they could have been that big of a deal and yet I don't know her. I know Georgia O'Keeffe. Yeah. I think that's a pretty standard name for people to be aware of as like a woman artist. That's like one of the ones you make. Definitely. Like that, Georgia O'Keeffe comes up all the time. And granted, she's very talented, but still, it was just kind of crazy to think that like Florine Stettheimer was barely behind her in like how well known she was. And yet it didn't stick. And we'll talk a a little bit about why later, but Mm -hmm. just kind of crazy. Like it's so weird hearing about how famous these people are. I know we talk about this all the time, but it's so strange. No, it is so weird. And all of a sudden, they, they're gone. No yeah. one cares. No and one it knows. just makes me think, like, I don't know, is it just going to continue to happen? Like, are there people that are, like, so famous now that, like, we'll just never comment on ever again? Like, which people are just going to, like, collectively, like, not care about? I don't know. It's so weird. It's a little debilitating to my brain. I don't quite yeah. comprehend it. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you think you know all of the famous people. Like, we talk about Elvis and Michael Jackson and true Diana. Like you know, like... Da Vinci, even if we want to go back further and yeah. spe- specify on painters. So it's just weird to think about that there's people that were talked about so widely, like, so well-known, and then mm-hmm. we at some we point we just stopped talking yeah. about them. I don't know. Freaks me out. Anyway, <laughs> Agreed. moment of introspection. Her most famous set of paintings was called her cathedral paintings. She actually worked on these for about 10 years, maybe 15-ish. Um, she started in 1929 and continued until the mid-1940s. And she painted these four monumental works that she considered like secular shrines of New York City. Cute. <clears throat> so that's why she called them cathedral paintings. They were yeah. like... You know, a little homage to the city. One was like the new theater and movie districts of Times Square and Broadway. Wall Street is the center of finance and politics. Fifth Mm -hmm. Avenue's upper class stores and society. And the elitism and infighting among New York's three major art museums, the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Whitney Museum of American Art. And these, I would say, like, probably what she worked on the longest. She continued to work on them until a few weeks before she died. And they technically are unfinished. Oh. Yeah. One thing that's kind of funny, (laughs) she painted about, like, the infighting between three major art museums. And I guess one of them won because four of the – all four of the cathedral paintings are actually on display in the Met. So I guess they won in the end. (laughs) Although she didn't necessarily pick for them to go there. So I don't know. But that's where they ended up. (laughs) A critic actually called them out by saying that it was the most modern in the world of works of art and said it's cinematic, historic, fantastic, realistic, mocking, affectionate, calligraphic, encyclopedic, Proustian, and even Portinus. Wow. In fact, it has everything and everything in proportion. So they were very well loved. And when you look them up, they're probably like, like if you Google just her name. Mm-hmm. Those are probably the ones that will come up as, like, the most famous. 
And I think that's one of the ones that I saw posted. I'm going to have to look. I had a really hard time finding like exact references to a lot of her paintings. Mm. Oh, here we go. Okay, so there's the Cathedrals of Fifth Avenue. Cathedrals of Wall Street has a lot of like soldiers and American flags. (laughs) The Cathedrals of Broadway is one that comes up a lot. It has the Roxy. And then she has, like, a screen showing, like, a movie star on it. And then she has, like, a bunch of people down below. There's a lot going on. These all look finished. So I wonder if the one that's not. I don't know. They look done to me. I don't know what she would have added. One other thing that she did is she did stage and costume design again. So, like I mentioned before, she did, like, her own little opera and created all the characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second time, they actually hired her to do the stage and costume design for the 1934 play, or I guess it was an opera. It was the first avant-garde opera in America called Four Saints in Three Acts, and it opened to sold-out audiences in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, The libretto was written by Gertrude Stein and the music by Virgil Thompson. And one thing that was really incredible is the cast were all black. Oh, wow. Cool. Entirely. Mm -hmm. Which for the first avant-garde opera in America, I love that. So amazing. So she designed the stage and the costumes. And Thompson was the one who invited her to design the opera when he saw her paintings in their custom frames. And then he also noticed her matching furniture designs and studio cellophane curtains. Like, she just had a very eclectic interior design style. And he was like, mm-hmm. you need Perfect. to do our costumes and sets. So she did. Um, in preparation, she made dolls with fully sewn costumes for each of the characters. And created Cute. designs for each scene, setting them in small shoe boxes. And then covered the entire backstage of the opera with layers of cellophane. And created palm trees, cellophane, and feathers. And for the stage sets, copied her own furniture to create them (laughs) the opera ended up having like mixed reviews but her costumes and sets won universal acclaim so like everyone was talking about them and i think i saw in an exhibit picture that some of them have like some of the dolls that she made (laughs) i don't know if it was like from that first time survived kind of but yeah i think they've got some of like her early that's cool costume designs and everything which i just think is so cool like the attention to detail to make like a miniature version of everything that you were gonna do before you Mm -hmm. create it obsessed so that was that one other thing that she did that she was not public until after her death was she was a poet um she would write poems on little scraps of paper and then they ended up being gathered and privately published by her sister eddie later um some of them were written in nursery style some offer witty social critiques and others were satirical portraits of fellow modernists she has one after gertrude stein called gertie mm-hmm. and one after michelle Ducamp that she just titled douche nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like obviously talking about Ducamp, but yeah mm-hmm. funny um her poems were like showing an awareness of contemporary consumer culture. They offered a lot of her critiques on marriage. Um, She wrote one poem Mm -hmm. dedicated to Marie Sterner, who was that New York gallerist who curated her exhibition. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) the poem, like, one line says, who intended to be a musician, but Albert married her. So basically saying, like, he ruined her life. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Which, I mean, can be true for a lot of marriages in that time period, so I kind of get what she was saying. You know what? Can be true for a lot of marriages today. Yeah. I'm I, just going to say. A little derailed, but interesting fact I learned this week is that women are more likely to put their careers on hold mm-hmm. for their husbands than husbands yeah. are to put their careers on hold for their wives. So even though, like, a lot of women could maybe be more successful in their career, if it comes down to a choice between the husband or the wife, they usually always choose the husband. Yep. And I thought that was so interesting Mm -hmm. that that tends to be Like even in a household if both people are working and focusing on their thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If like the husband gets a job offer to move to LA, but the wife's got like a thriving career in New York City, a lot of the times, like more often than not, they'll move to LA. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was so interesting. So yeah, her poems – 
were assembled, of course, collected, edited by her sister, and then published in the limited edition that she sent to her family and friends. They have reprinted some of her poems and, like, her early ballet story uh, Mm. later, talking about how, like, you see a lot of just, like, her humor and her wit and Mm -hmm. just so much that shows up in her paintings, you see it in her poems as well. And they compared it a lot to, like, cellophane because there's, like, shiny surfaces, glossy protective layers, and yet it's still see-through. That yeah. People got very poetic about it. <laughs> but one other poem I wanted to read that I really loved. Okay. Uh, it's, Sweet Little Mouse Wanted Her Own House, So She Married Mr. Mole and Only Got a Hole. I love her. I love just her. so That's funny. So like funny. her biting humor is so evident in everything. And like, yeah, I just love it. I'm going to try to find more of her poems. I tried to find a couple and I like couldn't. Mm-hmm. I think there's a book on Amazon that has like her poems specifically in it. I did buy her biography and not the poems, but I'm hoping I can find. Yeah, some more. I think that that was the one I saw. It's like paintings and poems. Like, yes, a book. So that's cool. So I know that they're somewhere. I just I had a hard time finding a lot of her stuff on the internet. Fair. On May 11th, 1944, she actually died of cancer in New York Hospital. What's really sweet is that daily her sisters, Eddie and Carrie, would go and visit her. And Carrie actually ended up dying only a few weeks later after she passed away. And her lawyer would go and visit her pretty much every day, too. Unlike a lot of her family who were buried in a family plot which was very common at the time, she asked to be cremated and then her ashes were scattered during a boat trip on the Hudson River by Eddie and Solomon. So the witch is her lawyer. So her sister and her lawyer scattered her ashes. So she's in the Hudson River. Wow. Rest and in peace. one thing that she wished is that she wanted all of her work to be given as a collection to a museum, hmm. which would make sense because yes. she was an extremely prominent artist. You would think that that would be a, thing. Would be a like, no-brainer yeah like open a statheimer wing like what the heck especially these like new york institutions that are like so focused on you know anyway however after her death they realized that like it was too difficult to find one museum to take the entire collection oh hmm. actually like shortly before her death so hmm. she revised her will and just asked that her sisters would follow her wishes that her works wouldn't be sold but would be donated to museums oh. across the country and so she left this task to her lawyer and a lot of her friends who donated her paintings to the most major art museums in the United States, including giving the cathedral paintings to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So I guess like that's how you they did end see up that. there. Yeah. yeah cool. <laughs> On hearing of her passing, Ducamp actually wrote Eddie from France and asked if he could organize a retrospective of her paintings. And this exhibition was the first full retrospective of a woman artist organized by the Met. And it also included a catalog essay written by her friend and art critic, Henry Henry McBride, who I quoted a lot in this. He really loved her work. And following its run in New York, it it also traveled to the San Francisco Legion of Honor Museum and the Arts Club of Chicago. Oh, cool. So very prominent exhibition. What happened? (laughs) Okay, so Harper's Bazaar wrote an article after her death. Like, guys, she was famous. Like, I don't know, like, to emphasize this. So Harper's Bazaar wrote an article and Carl Van Vechten stated that she was both the historian and the critic of her period. And she goes a long way towards telling us how some of New York lived in those strange years after the First World War, telling us in brilliant colors and assured designs, telling us in painting that has few rivals in his in her day or ours. Wow. So famous. However, what happened is following her death, they donated the art. But the taste in art had moved to abstract expressionism, which is very like Jackson Pollock, like very abstract. Mm -hmm. And so her paintings were frequently not displayed. And then in addition, because of the fact that she didn't sell her art at galleries or auctions, like there wasn't a lot of publicity behind it. She never made money off of a single art piece. And I think that that's really incredible. It wasn't because it wasn't popular. It was like by choice. Like, yeah, she that was a very didn't want to, mm-hmm. but it led to like not a lot of people outside of that main art world knowing her name. And so a lot of people didn't know about her. 
people tried like there was a biography in 1963 that was released called Florence Stetheimer, A Life in Art. In the 1970s, her work was revived by most prominently Linda Nochlin. Yes. Bravo. Who we've talked about a lot. She did a lot of work on that. She wrote the essay, Why Are There, Why Are there No Great Women Artists? Which a we have a whole episode read. on. So, you know, like they really tried. Another thing was like she never affiliated herself with a single well-known gallery so like they didn't have she didn't have like a salon that she displayed at she didn't have like someone advocating for her work after mm-hmm. she passed away and then like her unique feminine and like very consciously female gaze was like very different from the male dominated scenes of abstract expressionism and minimalism of the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. so it just led to her like fading really quickly even after every time she was brought up <clears throat> she went through another revival in 1995 that they did a retrospective exhibition of her work at the whitney and then another publication of a biography blomix the life and art of florence Stadheimer. and from this point her work influenced a lot of contemporary women and gay artists because of the decorative theatrical style like the female gaze and everything but in 2015 her first retrospective of her work was done in europe and it's been included in numerous exhibitions and it's starting to kind of become more fully recognized of like her significance as an early feminist artist and like mm-hmm. her influence on contemporary artists because she literally like created a whole style but <laughs> she's still obviously not known like i found about I found out about her from an Instagram page that posts work by like unknown female artists. And like, you're hearing about her on a podcast (laughs) about about unknown unknown female female artists artists, um, rather than her name being everywhere. And it's kind of one of those things, like when I found Helma Offclint, that the injustice of it all just like pisses me off. (laughs) Cause I'm like, she was so incredible. And like, because of her decision to not make money off of her art, she basically was alienated from the entire art history. That is so interesting. Yeah. Which is so unfair. The executive editor of Art News stated that her paintings elegantly make the case that she is one of the greatest artists of the 20th century and could serve as a useful model for those of the 21st. Oh, and I love that. I agree. Like, I see a yeah. lot of art trends leaning more towards this direction again of like, I know I could put that up in my home, like a print of that, and people would be like obsessed. I know. Wait, does that mean that like I couldn't even buy a print of it because she didn't want to make money from it? I wonder. I think a lot of her paintings are like there's a lot of art sites that'll let you download high Mm. definition, okay, like photographs of art for free. Okay. Um, so that would be something to look into. Like, I think you could probably find one. There's probably like some Etsy shop that set them up for printing. But it's just like, you know how like sticker sleeve tattoos have been really popular in recent years? Yeah. I've seen a lot of paintings that are kind of like that too, where people will Mm. paint like random objects all on the canvas together, like a few of the artists we've shouted out. And I think it has like a similar effect and style to like her work. Yeah, I can see the tie-in for sure. And I just think, like, she should be so popular. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I absolutely love it. Like, looking at her work is is beautiful. It's so pretty. It's so pretty. I feel the responsibility. I mean, like, to to share it. Oh, wait, that's what we do every week. But I'm like, I (laughs) want this, like, it's like every week I'm like, dang it. I just wish, like, our podcast would go viral and, like, Sure, for selfish reasons, but, like, also just so, like, people could, like, know these artists, you know? Literally, I think that's what leads to, like, most of our irritation with, like, things not doing as well. Like, when episodes don't do well or Mm -hmm. something, it's, like, it's not because of us. Like, yeah, that's part of it. But, like, we're not really making money off of this. (laughs) It's more just because, like, sometimes you'll research someone and we find, like, such a attachment to them. Like, you get, like, Mm -hmm. personally attached to them. And then all of a sudden maybe the episode doesn't do that well or like you don't understand why people aren't like shouting from the rooftops like look at this art (laughs) yeah and that's like how it feels sometimes it's just like ah everything we do and they're still being ignored it's still being ignored i know yeah i feel that well thank you for teaching me about her today that was yeah beautiful artwork she obviously lived a very fun life i want to get a time machine so we can go back and go to her salon for an afternoon that's all i want Oh, and I wanted to mention really quickly, 
her painting that you should all look up, especially for the holiday season, is called Christmas. Mm. And it's actually right now at the Yale University Art Gallery. Um, she painted it from 1930 to 1940. And it's gorgeous. Mm, amazing. So it ties into the holidays right yeah, there. Yeah, that's the tie. That's the first painting I saw of hers. So amazing. definitely go look at that. I'll pay, post so much yes. on the Instagram and just talk about her. Tell someone. Send this episode to someone. Be like, look at this work by this look wonderful woman. Look at how beautiful. Woman. Oh, yeah. The Christmas painting is beautiful. Right? I see it. I would put that up in my home. I know. The Christmas tree. I'm going to have to amazing. print some. I planned on like Helma Offclint for my kitchen and like the color scheme and everything matches. And now I'm like, hmm, we need to get like some Florence Dattheimer oh, going yeah. here. And and yeah. by the way, I I did check. You you can go on Etsy and they'll you can get a print of her there artwork. There you go. So. I figured they were there somewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's a photograph, but yeah, you can get yeah. it. I'm obsessed. Well, again... Thank you. I'm mm-hmm. adding her to my list of favorites. Same. So very much appreciate it. I'm just obsessed with her. And I'll have to report back after, you know, we do mm-hmm. some more reading and everything. So. Absolutely. Perfect. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us. Hope you enjoyed learning. Um, we mentioned at the beginning, doesn't hurt to remind you to leave a rating and review on Spotify or podcast. Come say hi on YouTube. You can subscribe there now and watch us discuss. And <laughs> we'll be back next week. <laughs> yes, every we Monday. Will. Every single Monday. We love it. We love all of you. Thank you to all of you who have us in your top 10 on mm-hmm. all of the ones we can't even see. And We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.